Amen. Well, good morning. If you would, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Lord willing, we will sort of land the plane on a short, short series we've done on apologetics from the resurrection. So we'll land the plane on that today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 will actually begin... In verse 18, chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this text would be a reality in this room, in our hearts, that You would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into us, that we would see the beauty of Your Son Encourage Your people. And Lord, if there are those who are here who do not see, we pray that You would remove the veil and awaken them to life. We ask You to bless this Word in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking a question. How do you know the Bible is true? How do you know that the book that you believe is authoritative and sufficient, the book that you are claiming your eternity on, is true? How do those Peruvians in the Andes Mountains that are illiterate, that the Matthews are ministering to, laying their lives down for, how do they know the Bible is true? How does the recent convert from Islam who may lose his life for Christ, know that the Bible is true. When you raise your kids in a culture that is hostile to Christian values, when everyone else is saying the Bible is not true, or when you get a diagnosis that is terminal, or you get in a tragic accident, or you lose someone special, how do you know that the Bible is true? Your Bible. Your 66-book Protestant Bible. There are a lot of ways that Christians 
have attempted to answer this question. And because the Bible is true factually and historically, there are a lot of different ways that you can get to the conclusion that it is true. We could talk about the historical evidence and we could look at the early church and see very clearly what books they believed were Scripture. And I could give you quotes from early church fathers to show that the canon of Scripture that they believed was the Word of God is essentially the same as what we believe to be the Word of God in the second and third centuries. We could look at manuscript evidence and we could see that the four Gospels that we have in our Bibles were seen and were, were viewed by the early church as authentic because they were copied and transmitted and spread at a much higher rate than any other work that claimed to be a gospel. We could look at the empirical evidence of Jesus' life and resurrection and the fact that His apostles so believed that what He said was true, that they gave their lives for Him, to write about Him, to preach about Him. We could say that the Bible is true because of the impossibility of the contrary. Uh, meaning that if we do not start with God and His revelation, then we have no basis to know anything is true. Uh, you know, for example, the atheist cannot claim anything to be right or wrong or true because his worldview does not allow for right or wrong or true. We are all merely products of accidental mutations over billions of years. And so there's no inherent meaning or value to anything. Everything is random. So how can we know anything to be true in that system of thought? Or we could, we could take all the philosophies and ideologies and religions and we could work through all of them and we would see that they are all ultimately self-contradictory. And they provide an insufficient basis for life. Yet we see in the Bible a satisfactory justification for life. We see an all-knowing and all-powerful God who creates and gives meaning and purpose and defines right and wrong. And we would see that the Christian worldview in, in Scripture is ultimately the only worldview that is consistent and coherent and that every other way of thinking is totally irrational. We could do all of these things, and these are all worthy arguments. However, here's the problem. What if you don't know all of those arguments? What about the recent convert from Islam to Christianity who hasn't read church history? What about those illiterate Peruvians who can barely read? What about the freshman in college who for the first time in her life, her worldview is being challenged and skepticism about the Christian faith is being sown and the pleasures of this world are being offered to her? How does she know? What about the mom with one or two or four or eight kids at home? who hasn't read Van Til and Frame and isn't caught up on all the latest apologetic podcasts, how does she know that the Bible is true? What about you? Can you have an unshakable confidence that the Bible that you hold is God's Word? And I want to argue in this sermon that we can this landed on me really heavy about five years ago, almost to the day. 
God saved me about 10 years ago in a very charismatic setting uh, that was not very healthy looking back on it. Uh, but he saved me from my sins and, and, and I was hungry for him. I was on fire for him. And I sought him diligently in his word and in prayer. But I began to see as the years went by uh, conflicts in the church and problems and corruption and, and all of these types of things. And I began to sort of waver on what I believed. And at the same time, the church that we were in uh, turned into another church and I already was struggling with this church and I definitely was struggling with the next church and I was shaking. I wasn't on solid ground and one of my uh, closest friends who discipled me began to waver in his faith. And I began to hear about how all these other books were floating around that didn't make it into the canon and what about these books and what about these books and how do you know your Bible is God's Word. And I began to be faced with that reality. I'm 25 years old. I'm married. I'm beginning to have children. And I began to say, I need to know why this Bible is true. And very closely after that, in the providence of God, I read John Piper's book, A Peculiar Glory. And it absolutely revolutionized my life. And I began to see and understand that though historical and empirical data does point to the fact that the Bible is God's Word, I began to see that ultimately the Scriptures themselves sufficiently reveal that they are the Word of God. The Bible bears witness about itself. It shows itself. It has a self-attesting, a self-evidencing nature that shows itself to be the Word of God without needing validation from anything outside of itself. And I began to be gripped by this reality. And so how does it do this? So this is my thesis for today. It does this by showing forth the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Our Bible does that. Christians throughout history have understood that this 66 book canon shines a light, a majesty, not simply because of poetic eloquence, but because every book from Genesis to Revelation works toward the same purpose. Think about the supernatural majesty here that different authors over 1,500 years in different locations and different times using different genres and styles communicate the same truth and are ultimately interested in the same purpose to reveal the glory of Yahweh in the face of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Yet that poses the question, how do we know which books belong in the canon and which ones do not? The answer is this. The books that belong in the canon are the books that show the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the books that do not, do not belong in the canon. Now I don't mean to say that every book in the Bible gives us a well-defined Christology. 
all right, or anything like that. But what I mean is that the entire Bible, the entire scope, the scope of the whole, shows forth the glory of God in His perfection, in His holiness, in His sovereignty, in His redemption. And we see that this glorious God's revelation is climaxed in Jesus Christ. So if I had three or four hours up here, I could walk you through an overview each book of the Bible and show how it does this. But I know you guys don't want to be here for three or four hours, so understand that much more can be said. However, what we must see today is that all of this lands back in the resurrection. In this series, we've labored to show that the ultimate apologetic for the Christian faith is the resurrection. And not only is the resurrection our apologetic, but it is our foundation for our hope and our confidence. You can have hope of eternal life because of the resurrection. You can not sin later today when you go home because of the resurrection. You can stare Death in the face, physical death in the face, and not be afraid because of the resurrection. And likewise, we can have confidence that our Bible is true because of the resurrection. You say, well, how does that follow? Well, because God raised Jesus from the dead, He therefore validates everything that Jesus said and claimed about Himself as true. So the resurrection proves that every claim Jesus makes is true, that every demand that He makes is valid, and that everything He says about Himself and about humans is perfectly accurate. The resurrection shows this. And guys, just as a side note, we talked about the myth of neutrality last week. We obviously know that's a fallacy, but guys, it has consequences that are are just tragic. The myth of neutrality. And guys, we have bought into this way of thinking in our day that says that Christian teachings have no place in the public sphere. Everything else has a place in the public sphere, but not the teachings of Jesus. Those belong in the home. Those belong in the place of worship. The problem is that Jesus claims to be Lord of all. And that He is very interested in everything that goes on in His world. And He demands everyone, as we saw last week, to repent and to believe in Him. And you know, it's one thing to talk about how rejecting God's design for marriage and family and sexuality will have tragic consequences on a culture. That's clear. But guys, the lordship claims that Jesus makes about Himself are astonishing. And people are not even considering them. A judgment is coming and billions of people in this world are giving no thought to it whatsoever because we've been convinced of the myth of neutrality. Many of you know I used to teach in public school settings, and I remember one time saying to some students, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, of course, but I said, guys, we do you such, a, such a, uh, an injustice, such a disservice by completely removing 
anything religious from your consideration. And we just teach you math and science and history. And we, we push everything of faith out of your system of thinking altogether. And you don't, even have, you don't even have the ability, you don't even have to come to grips with the things that Jesus said about Himself. And the fact is that Jesus Christ has been worshipped for 2,000 years. An entire religion is built around Him and His teachings have radically transformed the world. And the idea of neutrality suggests that we don't even have to think about that. That's, for, that's a thing of faith. That's a thing of personal conscience. Conscious. Yet, Jesus says things like this about Himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Or, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I mean, if someone as massively important as Jesus Christ says this about himself, don't you think we have the responsibility to at least deal with those claims? Jesus has been raised from the dead And because He has been, everything He said is the truth. And I don't mean to say that Jesus just said true things. He is truth. He is the revelation of God. The very essence of everything that is right and pure and good and holy. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus says about Himself again in John 14.6, I am the truth. And so when we start asking the question of what books belong in the Bible, we need to start by asking, what books does Jesus believe belong in the Bible? What books does Jesus believe are authentic? That reveal authoritative truth. What words does Jesus believe are God's? Words. And I want to encourage us again that we don't need any extra biblical knowledge, as helpful as it may be, to know which books belong in the canon because Jesus tells us. And you may say, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't give us an exhaustive list of all the 66 books in the Bible. And that's right, he doesn't, but he does tell us which books he believes are the Old Testament. And He does tell us who He is going to commission to write the New Testament. And again, for me to really unpack this, I would need to take a while, so I want to just quickly show you what I mean. First, Jesus affirms the Hebrew Bible, which contains the exact same writings as the Old Testament that you have in your hand. No more and no less. And he believes that they are about him. And there are a lot of passages that show this, but I will just give you the most significant. Luke 24, 44-48. So this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And when he appears to his disciples to commission them just before he is taken to heaven, he says this. He says, These are my words which, which I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses 
and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So what writings did Jesus call the Scriptures? The writings that are about Him. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Which is how a first century Jew would say the entire Bible. The entire Old Testament. How are they about Him? Well, Jesus goes on to say, thus it is written in those books that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And He says, you are witnesses of these things. So Jesus is saying, look, the Scriptures are ultimately, ultimately about Me. They are pointing to My Gospel. My resurrection. My redemption that will go out into all the earth to save people. And someone may say, well, the Old Testament itself doesn't really put it, put it as clearly and as exactly and precisely as Jesus puts it here. And that's true, they don't. But guys, what, what Jesus is saying is all their content, all the types and the shadows and the feasts and the days and the sacrificial systems and the prophecies and the Psalms, all of these predictions, Jonah in the belly of the fish and Daniel going down into the lion's den and coming up, all of these things are about me, my gospel, my resurrection. And they point to my work. And he says to the apostles, you have seen them fulfilled. And now you're going to go tell about that to the world. So Jesus is saying the the Scriptures are the writings of Moses and all the prophets and all the wisdom literature because He fulfills them all. So other books that might compete to be among the Old Testament Scriptures, we can say confidently that they are not Scripture because they do not do this. Jesus did not believe they were Scripture because they were not about Him. They did not display God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Your Old Testament is Jesus' Old Testament. And you can be totally confident of that. What about the New Testament? Because the Old Testament is not as complicated because the Jewish people, by and large, have preserved their canon very well. But when you get to the New Testament, uh, you begin to see all sorts of controversies. And there are people that are writing books and publishing about this book and this book and the Da Vinci Code. And what about this Gospel and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas? And why not this book? And these things are very prevalent. And we know that the New Testament writings were written after Jesus ascended into heaven. So does Jesus affirm what books should be in the New Testament the way He does the Old Testament? The answer is yes. He absolutely does. And again, we could look at many texts to make this point, but the most emphatic is John 16. Just a few hours before Jesus was arrested, when He's speaking to the eleven, Judas is gone At this point, Jesus gives a promise to the eleven in John 16, 12-15. 
And he says, I still have many things to say to you. So I still have much to reveal about my father and about myself, but you cannot bear them now. But he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus was sent by God to speak the words of God, John 3.34. He speaks only what he hears from the Father, John 8.38. And he only does what he sees the Father doing, John 5.19. Yet here, just before Jesus' arrest, he says to his disciples, Look, I have more to say. More words from God to say. But just as I have spoken the words of God, I am going to send the Spirit to you and you are going to speak the words of God on my behalf as the Spirit leads you. He will glorify me, He goes on to say. The Spirit. The Spirit will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when, we, when the Spirit speaks through the preaching and writing of the apostles, it is as if the Father and the Son are speaking. You see this. And Peter makes this clear for us in 2 Peter 3.2 when he says you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. When Peter and Paul and James and John give commands, Jesus is giving commands because of His promise. So the authentic writings of the New Testament are those that contain what scholars call apostolicity. Not simply meaning that they were written by an apostle, or one who is closely associated with an apostle, although that is certainly true, but they were written by those whom the Spirit came and worked supernaturally through to record the very words of Jesus Christ through them. Those are the authentic words of the New Testament. And so just as Jesus affirms the Old Testament Scriptures that point forward to His person and work, He affirms the New Testament Scriptures by sending the Holy Spirit to His chosen spokesmen to ensure that they teach and record in writing the final fleshed out revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me summarize what I've said earlier that the entire Bible works together in unity toward the same purpose. The Old Testament begins the story and it sets us on this trajectory toward God's glory in Christ. And we see the promises given in Scripture and we see these promises traced out and we see covenants made and and pointing toward a future serpent crusher. And then we see in the four Gospels the person of Jesus Christ come in the flesh and we see Him revealed. We see the glory of God revealed in Christ, and then the writings of the apostles and their companions unpack the glory of God in Christ, and they flesh out the implications of what all Jesus' person and work means for all people for all time. 
And the resurrected Christ Himself affirms and validates all of these writings. And all of these writings share the same divine author. The Holy Spirit of God, whose primary agenda, according to Jesus, is to glorify Him. Now we see what the authors of the Westminster Confession meant when they said this, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. This is why the Quran is disqualified from the conversation. This is why the Book of Mormon is disqualified from the conversation. This is why the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas and all the other writings are disqualified from the conversation because they reveal a different Christ and a different Gospel. This is why the early church did not recognize them as Scripture. It's not because they were power hungry and wanted to suppress all the other writings because they were interested in power. No, it's because they they could see that God did not write these books because they did not display the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was clear to them the purity, the majesty and beauty and unity of purpose of this book leads to only one conclusion, brothers and sisters. It is from God. Therefore, we can be assured that every word is true. And you can bank your life and your eternity on every word of this book. The Bible you hold, the Bible that the resurrected Christ affirms as the Word of God proves itself to be authentic as we read and see His glory. And this is where I want to land the plane. Look at verse 18 in chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. He says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we as Christians in the new covenant behold Christ in the Word, we become like Him. The primary way that you are sanctified is when the Spirit comes working through the Word and enables you to see the beauty and glory of Christ and all that He's done so that you more and more bow your knee to Him and obey Him and trust His promises and joyfully die to your flesh and walk in the newness of life. Sometimes you may not even notice that this is happening. But as you grow to know Him and as you grow to see His glory, He transforms you. God has proven the Gospel of Jesus Christ to be true for 2,000 years as people have heard the Gospel preached and they've read it in this book. It has transformed them. And the Spirit has come and convinced them and given them assurance that this book is true. The Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts that the Scriptures are the Word of God. 
Again, the quote, the Westminster Larger Catechism, it finishes by saying, but the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the Word of God. So how do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? Because you see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and the Spirit comes and assures you of that truth and gives you confidence this is what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 when he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Or in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5 when he says, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but what? In the power of God. We know that the message of the Bible is true because the glory of the gospel of Christ that it is most interested in putting forth comes forth not merely as a beautiful message, although it is, not merely as a historically factual message, although it is, not as a rhetorically eloquent message with lofty reasoning, but because it comes accompanied with power in the demonstration of the Spirit that brings full conviction to the heart of man. This is what we call the internal witness of the Spirit. This is why only non-believers raise doubts about the validity of the Scriptures. It's because as Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not under, able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But he says, but for those who have the Spirit, we impart the things of God in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul sees that his teaching, which includes his writing, not as merely his own, but of the Spirit. And when others who have, who have the Spirit read Paul's writings or the writings of Scripture or hear them preached, they understand them because the Spirit comes and teaches them to that person and bears witness to them that these are the words of God that you are hearing and gives us assurance. And we see this in verse 6, back in our text. 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know that the Bible is true because as we see the person of Jesus Christ in Scripture, in the same way that God shined light into a dark world, He shines light in our hearts that bears witness of His glory. And that happens as we behold the person of Jesus Christ. This is true when we read Scripture, and it is true when we hear Spirit-empowered preaching. You may say, well, if that's true, why doesn't everyone see it? 
If the glory of God is revealed in Scripture, if God's glory is shining in the face of Jesus Christ, then why doesn't everybody see it when they read? Why can people read the Gospel and even comprehend it intellectually, but not see the glory of God? Well, in the same way that one can look up into the beauties of creation and see the ocean and the mountains and and all the weather in this world and not see the glory of God, but come up with suppressive ideas in their hearts about how it all got here, we can look into Scripture and see the person of Jesus Christ and suppress the truth and make up lies and not see the glory of God. As we have seen in this series, this failure to see is not merely an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. It is a sin issue. If people do not believe that the Bible is true, and they do not believe that Jesus is who He says He is, it is not because they need more proof. Do not buy into that lie. It is simply because they will not believe. Jesus says this, John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light, the light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus Christ showed the world the glory of God in history. And we have this revelation in Scripture. Christian brother and sister, do not allow the philosophies and the arguments of this age cause your confidence in this book to waver. Keep beholding Him. So I want to close with three final thoughts. Two for believers and one for any non-believers or skeptics who may be here or who may listen to this later. Number one, for believers, you will grow in your confidence in the Word of God as you seek to read it and obey it in humble dependence on the Spirit. You may be saying, well, I struggle to read one chapter a day. I struggle to know what's going on and I certainly don't feel like I'm seeing the glory of God in Christ much less seeing and savoring Him and enjoying Him. And I would just encourage you from, again, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If you have turned to Christ by faith, the Lord has removed the veil and shined His light in your heart. And you have beheld the glory of God. You have. You have seen His glory in the Gospel. And as you keep reading, and as you keep beholding, and keep praying for the Spirit's work in your heart, you will see more of His glory. And your confidence in the Scriptures will grow. And your assurance will grow. Secondly, for believers, this should give us confidence not to give up on witnessing to people. We should not grow weary. Keep finding ways of putting the Gospel of Jesus Christ before non-believers. And pray 
that the Lord would shine this light in their hearts. You know, some of the best evangelistic methods we can do is just simply to ask someone to read the Bible with us. Read the Gospel of John with me. You read a chapter, I'll read a chapter, let's talk about it, or let's just read it together. And, and just inviting people to church where Gospel proclamation is happening and let the Spirit work through the Word to reveal the glory of God in Christ. And lastly, for unbelievers, the most important decision that you will make in your life is what you will do with Jesus Christ in your very short life. Will you go on in unbelief as we wrap up this series uh, with millions of others in this country and all over the world occupied with all sorts of things that you deem to be important as the days and the years and the decades pass by, yet have absolutely no justification for your unbelief? Will you go on living for yourself, knowing that the resurrected Christ calls you to Himself? Knowing that He claims to have died for you to save you from your sins? Knowing that He claims to be the judge of all? And that He calls you to repent and obey Him? Will you do that? Will you continue on? At the very least, that is very irresponsible. I want to encourage you, if you're a non-believer or a skeptic, to start with the Gospel of Matthew and just read through the New Testament. Read through it from beginning to end and seriously consider the claims of Jesus and His apostles. Seriously consider His death and resurrection. Consider that millions of people over the last 2,000 years, many, in, many of whom have nothing in common in different places of the world, have been convinced that I will live and die for Jesus. And ask yourselves, why don't I believe? And by God's grace, it will be clear to you that you have no reason not to believe other than you love your sin more than Jesus. And if you realize that, by the grace of God, you can turn to Him and call upon His name, and He will save you. Because the Bible promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you turn to Him, He will remove the veil, and you will see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your sufficient Word. We thank You that You have spoken finally in history, in the person of Christ, that we await no more revelation, but that we have Your final Word in the Bible. And Lord, we long, we plead with You, Lord, to reveal, to illuminate more and more of Your glory to us through the Scriptures. Bless us, Lord, to read, to know, to seek, and to savor, savor Jesus Christ in His beauty. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.